0: The following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Today, so far, Jesus hasn't come back. I know you know this. Just wanted to make sure you knew this. Uh, Through the years, people have suggested dates when Jesus would return. Behind me, eight guys who thought they knew. Innocent III thought 1284. He thought, you know what? Muhammad is clearly, Islam is clearly the Antichrist. Muhammad founded it. He added 666 years. It says 1284 must be the day that Jesus is coming back. Turns out he was wrong. Nostradamus predicted uh, that in 1999, Jesus would return, actually the world would end. Isaac Newton uh, spent the last years of his life studying the Bible to figure out the beginning of the world and the date of the end of the world and calculated that it would be in 2060. I uh, guess we can't confirm that one yet. Uh, ch- Charles Wesley, the founder of Methodism, preached in 1794 that the great beast of Revelation would soon appear, thinking it would be around 1800. William Miller preached that Jesus would return in 1843, rapture all believers, Uh, and then in 1843, he decided he was off a year, and said 1844, and then he stopped making predictions. In 1970, Hal Lindsey said uh, in the late great planet Earth that Jesus would return within one generation of the reestablishment of Israel as a nation. So he calculated that Israel in 1948 therefore Jesus is going to come back around 1988. Pat Robertson said in 1990 that Jesus, the world would end and Jesus would return in 2007. 1992, Harold Camping, the founder of the Radio net, uh, Family Radio Network uh, declared that the world would end in 94 or 90 and then he said 95 and they recalculated things. They said, no, no, Jesus is going to come back in the middle of 2011. And clearly, just to be clear, none of these guys were right. Uh, I think we're all, hopefully you're on the same page with that. You didn't miss anything. Uh, There are people the world over, Christian and non-Christian, who look ahead and expect the world to end. Say that the environment, it's going to be a cataclysm. War, it's just going to go and nuclear destroy everything. Uh, Jesus is going to come back and here's when. Um, There are many people who believe the world will end and there are some who will tell you exactly when. And I would say that there are some promises about the date that Jesus will return. There is one promise that is a guarantee that Jesus will not return on any date that someone predicts. So if you ever just want to know, like, when can I be certain that Jesus is not coming back, it's going to be on a date that somebody says that he is. Because in Matthew chapter 24, which I put in your notes just so you'd know, verse 44, it says, For this reason you also must be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Which means we can be sure he won't return on the day that people say that he will return. It's the only only thing we can be certain of. But as we enter this new year... We can definitely say that Jesus is going to come back, that he is going to return, though the when is a little bit of a question. He could come back today. Jesus could literally come back today, or tomorrow, or many, many years from now. We we don't know when. Um, What we can say is that the days are getting darker, and that's a sign that Jesus' return is drawing closer, uh, that the world is... Seems to be in a bit of decline, that the hour of Christ's return is getting closer. It seems to be that way. When we read the Bible, we see that America doesn't appear to play a large role in the return of Jesus and God's plan for the end. But clearly, America's in decline. Um, that the judeo Christian morality that was there at the establishment of our nation is in decline, secularism is on the rise, and when you look not just at our country but the world around, it does seem that things are growing darker, um, that the end is drawing closer, though we don 't know when we we look to the Bible and it says that we should expect Jesus to return at any time, that the days will grow darker as a sign that his coming uh, is soon. And it's the start of a new year, and Chris is in Hawaii. So what better time to talk about the end of the world, really, uh, than now? So I thought we would take a brief break from Galatians to look at some really timely words from Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4. If you have your Bible, open up there. Galatians, which we've been studying, is written really early in the life of the church. Peter's written much later. The situation of the church is a fair bit different. It's written by Peter during Nero's reign. Nero, if you know, if you've heard the name, you probably associate him with a bad guy. He didn't start a bad guy. He became a Caesar at age 17. The First few years, even first decade of his rule wasn't bad. He was generally loved by the people. But over time, he became more cruel and more unpopular, such that by the end of his reign, the Roman Senate had declared him to be a public enemy. He was that despised by the end of his reign. Uh, he was generally agreed to be, is generally agreed to be, the first persecutor of Christians. Uh, after the great fire in Rome, he blamed Christians for for it, and more and more began to persecute Christians, uh, such that even later on, he caused all Jews and Christians to have to leave Italy. Uh, Aquila, Priscilla, others were caught up in that. Peter's writing to some of those who were dispersed, some of those who likely were cast out from uh, by Nero. Peter would eventually be put to death by Nero. Uh, he, he was not a nice man. And in 1 Peter, He's writing in the midst of Nero's rule. He's writing to people who are suffering, who are on trial metaphorically and sometimes literally. First uh, Peter is a book about how to have hope in the midst of hardship. How to be courageous in the midst of fear. How to be faithful in the middle of suffering. And it's a book written to help us be ready. And as we enter 2023, I want us to be ready. I want want us to be ready. I have no idea what's going to happen. I have no idea whether Jesus is coming back. No idea not saying anything about the end of the world. But I I look ahead. I don't think it's unreasonable to say that we should anticipate more suffering in the coming year than we have in the past. Because if you just look like five years ago, life seems harder now than then or ten years ago. And the world seems darker now compared to then. We should anticipate more suffering. Some of that will just come on a personal level. This last week, I drove down to Escondido, to uh, Palomar Hospital, and spent time with Robert and Kim Clark. Robert's our missionary to the Philippines, uh, and he is in the hospital. He had a stroke. Uh, It was unexpected, surprised, came in the middle of the night, and uh, he's recovering. I'm super thankful, Uh, but it's been hard, and they're left wrestling and grappling with, well, how much is he going to recover? What does the future hold for us? And they're not alone in that. I know that for a number of y'all, you have struggled and suffered physically, and I think it's reasonable to expect that... For some of us, that will be all the more in 2023. You'll have personal trials of health and hardship. And this fall, uh, the elders spend an evening with all the public educators in our church that we could gather to talk about what life is like in education right now. Well, what is going on in our valley, what challenges do they face from administration, from the state, what's the good, the bad, the ugly? And there were some real encouragements that came out, and at the same time, it's really true that some of them faced very hard trials at work to be a faithful Christian uh, in the environment that they're in. And, and that I know is true for a number of y'all, and I anticipate it's going to get worse in 23 Will probably be harder to be a faithful Christian at work for for many of us in the next year. More than a few people within our church live with other people in our church because their immediate family uh, is aggressively antagonistic about the gospel. So, so there's people who, in our church who are believers who've moved in with other believers just to escape the, the trials and conflict and accusations and, and hardship that they face from their immediate family. And I, I don't know what 23 holds for any of us, but I can say with confidence that we're driving towards a time when Jesus is going to crash into the world we know and utterly upend it. And before that time comes, it won't get easier, it'll get harder. So so how do we get ready for that? Um, That's not what New Year's resolution do you make, but how do you get ready for life ahead as the end draws near? How do you live in 23 as the end draws closer? And so for the answer to that, you don't have to come back next week, you just need to open up your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 4. That's going to have the answer right in it. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7-11, to 11, which begins with seven words, a short phrase that I just want to own, we're all, and me particularly, are prone to forgetting. Peter starts by saying, the end of all things is near. Let that sink in. The end of all things is near. I don't know if you're like me, but I can be guilty of thinking that the world is enduring, that it's unchanging, that life is, it goes fast, but it generally seems to be improving and things are going to get better. And as we go forward and work hard, things are just going to improve over time. And there's a reality, a real sense in which it's right to plan for the future. If Jesus delays, if he doesn't return soon, to plan that you're going to maybe get old and you should have some retirement. And that your kids are going to get older and need to go to college. To make plans like that is okay. And at the same time, we want to own and acknowledge the end of all things is near. That the world is going to come crashing down. That this is not our home. That we are not yet in Christ's kingdom. That what's around us is going to burn. That he has not yet returned to rule and to reign on earth. But there is a day coming when every knee will bow. That there is a day coming when the judge will return. When the offer to forgive will no longer be extended. And thankfully, we're not at that time yet. But it's coming. And we need to live in light of it. This is the consistent message of Scripture. We heard it actually in James. In James chapter 5, he said the same thing. I just wanted you to be reminded of it because we just studied this. James chapter 5, verse 8. What does he say? It's in your notes. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brothers, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Listen, when when Jesus, we just celebrated Jesus' first return, right? His his first coming, the first advent, the time when he came as a baby. He was born of a woman, and he grew up. And he was presented to Israel as the Messiah, and they rejected him. This was all according to God's plan, and it was for the salvation, our salvation. It was great. I'm so thankful, um, so thankful for God's plan. But when he was killed and resurrected, he ascended, and now he has promised to return, to rule, reign, and judge. That—that's the promise. He will put an end to all the ways of this world. That he will bind Satan and cast him into the abyss. That he will judge those who have rejected him. That he will fulfill the promises that were made to Israel. And oh. Await his return. He will transform the world under his rule. And the reason this hasn't happened yet is because God is patient, not wishing for any to perish, but that all would repent and return to him. That's what Peter would go on to say in 2 Peter chapter 3. And his trials and suffering around us increases. As life begins to sometimes feel just more bleak, more dark, more weary, more full of fear and the unknown, Peter wants you to know how to live, and he wants you to know that the end of all things is near. That's what he says to believers who are suffering, who are facing hardship. So, how will you live in 2023 as the end draws closer? For that answer, look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Peter says, The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Because the end is nearing, Peter says, "Here's how. Therefore, here's how you're to live." And he gives three priorities, three things to work at, three things to, to focus on as the end draws near. And the very first one he says is that we should pray clearly. To pray clearly. The the word therefore right after it there shows up as these two commands be of sound judgment, be of sober spirit. Notice neither of them are prayer, but be of sound judgment. It means to be self-controlled, to be sensible, to have control of your brain, to be clear minded, to be reasonable. Right? When the world feels crazy around you, you you keep a clear head. When everyone around you is irrational and just fueled by fear, you keep your senses, you keep your wits. When eggs are nine bucks a dozen, like you don't freak out, you just kind of embrace it, you, you move on with it, right? You use your brain and you control your heart. That's actually the second part of the command there, the second command that's in it, to be of sober spirit or to be sober-minded. Uh, it's a, world that descri- a word that describes the opposite of intoxication. If you've ever seen someone who's drunk, you know that they uh, not only have a loose tongue, but the alcohols led them to basically feel a lot more comfortable expressing their heart, whatever that is, to be less controlled. Those less controlled elements just find full expression in someone who's drunk. Here, Peter's saying the opposite. He's saying you're to be in full possession of your heart, full possession of your emotions, full possession and control of your feelings. Not to be confused about what's going to happen. Not to be worried about what the future holds. That your anxieties, your worries, your lusts shouldn't be in control of you. The end of all things is near, so be self-controlled. Grab hold of your brain and your heart, your thinking and your feelings. Now, if you have ever been at an amusement park, and I'm assuming most of you all have, and you've been there into like the evening hours... You've seen the kid who shouldn't still be at the park, but is. Do you know what I mean? The one who is pure emotion, uh, like they're a body and just raw emotion flowing out of them. They're, they're hyper-emotional. They've been at the park too long. They're exhausted and unable to contain how they feel anymore. Easily upset, should be done for the day, but somehow still at the park. Child. Maybe you've had that child there. Maybe you've just seen it. I think most of you know what I'm talking about. Yes? Like the the one who's just this bundle of emotions and feelings detached from all reason. Let's just admit that though we're not at the park, sometimes we can be a bit like that kid where our emotions and our feelings are what are most manifest without the controls and restraints that should be there, that our reason can take a back seat. And Peter here, honestly, is just commanding you to change. Not because like a life led by your emotions is hard, which it is, but his reason is so that you can pray more clearly. Now think about that. He says, the reason you should be self-controlled, sober-minded, have control of your thinking, of your feelings and emotions, is for, what he says, the purpose of prayer. For the purpose of prayer. Have you ever thought that controlling your emotions may help you pray better? That's what, that's what he's saying here. He wants you to be balanced and self-controlled in life so that you're alert in prayer. So that you're focused on the right things you're not distracted by flares of irrational thinking but with your brain and heart you're praying you're in full possession your thinking your emotions your feelings all the things heart and brain so that you can pray clearly this is actually tied into what the the verse we commonly go to which would be philippians chapter 4 verses 5 and 6 In your notes, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Get this, the Lord is near. Interesting. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Again, he's tying in that commitment to prayer with the return of the Lord. And I don't know what your habits of prayer are. I don't know how often you pray. I don't know what you pray for. But I can say that many Christians are prone to praying without thinking they go to god regularly due to how they feel maybe they give thanks as a routine but without thinking they confess but it's 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 not informed by their brain and their heart now you may have forgotten, but the um the little computer you carry around that 's called a phone actually calls people uh and when you last use it for that to pick it up, maybe to call a parent or a you know spouse or a kid or whatever somebody you had a purpose when you called when when you went into your zoom meeting, the last you know meeting you had to make video conference there was a goal of that meeting. When you sent an email, uh, you wrote something such that before you hit send, it was really clear why you were emailing that person. And I just wonder if your prayers have the same purpose as your communication to people via phone calls, Zoom, email, whatever. Are your prayers as focused As your other communication. We approach those with a goal in mind, with a purpose. Our prayers should be the same way. Too many Christians are prone to praying without purpose, without sense. And Peter here is just saying listen, as life gets harder, as the end draws nearer, man, don't be guided by how you're feeling. Pray clearly, pray with focus, pray with intensity. Pray with clarity. And so commit this year to pray clearly. You're going to need it in 23. There's going to be more to pray about than there ever has been. Pray with clarity. Think in advance what you want to communicate before you go to God in prayer. I'm confident you're going to need to pray more this year than you did in the year prior. Second thing, love deeply. We need to pray clearly, we need to love deeply. Verses 8 and 9, Peter says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. The challenge here, clearly, love one another is the dominant thought of these verses. Depending on your translation, though you may not have noticed, that love isn't the verb. It's actually a noun in the text. It's uh, written here. It's written as the object of our action that we need to keep in love. We need to have love. The focus here is on the, the nature of love that you're giving to others. And it's the love that Christ had for you. The love that we give to others is the love that Christ had for you. That, that's what's in focus here. And it's the love we read about in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. I put that in your notes. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. That God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation and the payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So get it. This is the love which Christ had for you on the cross that that love which he had for you while you were an enemy of his that's the love which you are to have for one another it's a love that still endures wrongs that endures wrongs that were committed against you and still loves it's a love that doesn't broke that can't be broken that is unfailing it's a deep abiding love and he says it with he adds in, it says, you're to love one another fervently. You're lo- to love one another earnestly. It's a, that word was used for <laughs> horses in full gallop, for Olympic athletes' muscles as they were straining forward. It talks about the intensity of our love to be one that is not just passive, but one that is in action, one that is deep and earnest, that functions highly. It covers sins done against you. It doesn't hold people responsible it doesn't look for um reciprocation it is the love that christ had for you that sort of love it doesn't hide sin it doesn't condone it it's not blind to it but it is compassionate it is gracious towards the failings of others and what peter says here is interesting because he then he adds on he says be hospitable be hospitable, which means we're to not just love people around us, but to, to love strangers, to have an affection for strangers. But then he kind of tweaks it. He says, be hospitable, love, have an affection for strangers to one another, which is like, wait, what? Have an affection for strangers who are one another? What does that mean? And the focus here is not the guy who's blaring music a few doors down at 1 a.m., like you should love him, but, it, but his focus is on the life of the church. And the church for the first few hundred years did not meet in buildings. It met in homes, much like our CGs do. It was believers who gathered together in homes. And he's saying, listen, you need to love the jerk who smeared chocolate on your sofa, right, who who was in your house. Not jerk, inconsiderate person uh, who, you know, trampled something, who didn't respect your stuff. The, The person who you don't know or who you're un- less familiar with within the church, you need to love them as much as the people who you know well. There, there are within the church, within any group, even a smaller group, not just the church, but within the, like a CG you're a part of, or a youth group, or whatever, there are people you know and people you know less well. And here he's saying, listen, our love for one another, it needs to be towards all of them. Those you know, those you don't know, all of them we need to love, right? Right? In verse 9, he says that that love shouldn't complain or grumble against one another, that it accepts them, that it embraces them. We overlook what they did. We overlook how they failed to appreciate us. When the youth leader sends a text three hours before the event and changes things, you overlook it and you love them. Like, you just overlook people and, and the sins that they commit against you. And my prayer for 23 is that we love one another more deeply. And, and honestly, we do well at this. Our church is not lacking in love, but it's an area that we're going to need to grow in all the more as the days approach. Because if the Lord tarries and doesn't come back right away, and if the rains ever stop within the next three years, we anticipate being on the campus in the new property and being in a building. And, And this command to love one another is going to be all the more necessary. Sometime between May and July, Lord willing... We're going to move out of this room. We're going to begin to meet on the property. And I know that you're going to miss the fire alarms. That's going to be sad to not have those. You know, your kids are going to miss being cold every morning. Um, But we're going to start to meet on our own campus. And we're going to have a couple months of just adjusting to it and getting used to that. And then sometime between July and December, what is going to happen is there's going to be visitors and more visitors and more visitors to the degree that we're probably a bit uncomfortable with where, where these people came from and why they're still here, um, because right now, if you're at our church, I feel like I should congratulate you, because nobody wakes up on a Sunday morning and says, "I'm going to go to church," and drives to their local high school. Like we are, we are here. You're here because somebody invited you here. Maybe you did a web search and found us. It's true for a small number. Most people are here because of somebody else in the church who invited them and brought them and told them where to go. We're not a natural find. You drive on our campus, you don't know, on this campus, you don't even know where to go to find the church meeting. Like, it's not evident, right? But that's all going to change. There's going to be a time coming, uh, like we don't do any advertising, we're not planning on it, but they're, they're going to find us. People are going to drive by and they're going to figure out that the hundreds of people who show up on a Sunday morning are not construction workers, right? Like that there's something happening on the tent that, that's different. They're going to see the tent, they're going to think there's a circus, there's clowns, like there, there's a place to go, right? You want to see the show. So, so this is going to happen. If people are going to come from the neighborhood, they're going to come from the community, they're going to come from driving by on the freeway and noticing the building, we're going to get visitors. And we're going to be challenged to love them like never before. You're going to be stretched in your love for others. To show the love of Christ to strangers. To care for people who don't necessarily appreciate you or what's being done. Who don't even understand why we do the things we do. I'm not a prophet nor the son of one. I would anticipate we will be sinned against, you will be sinned against more in 23 than in 22 or maybe even the years prior. There's gonna be incredible opportunities we have to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ in the next year. It's gonna be amazing, right? Ministries that happen on our future future campus, things that I know a number of y'all are already gearing up for. We need to be ready to love one another. We need to love one another and we need to love people who come. That deep love for others comes from an understanding of the true love that Jesus Christ has for us. This is why in our CGs we're doing uh, Living the Cross Centered Life, which the guys announced, talked about a little bit. If you're not in a CG, it's worth joining one for this. If you're in one, I'm excited about it. Uh, Living the Cross Centered Life is all about and the reality of the gospel, and what it means for us as Christians, not as the lost being saved, but as believers living in light of Christ's love for us, recognizing the truth. And we we want every person in the church to know the truth that Christ loved us when we were his enemies, that he loved us though there was nothing lovable inside of us that he covered every one of your sins, not just the ones you see, but the ones that are still hidden from you and then the ones that you haven't committed yet. That all of those are covered on the cross and that you're clothed in his perfect righteousness when you believe. It's an amazing truth. It transforms not just you to salvation, but it transforms you progressively through your life. And when you confess your sins and you believe that, it frees you to love others with joy, with self-sacrifice, to overlook the sins that they commit against you. And I believe, like, a church that loves others in this way is going to be this bright light in a dark valley. We we live in a great valley. Um, There's nowhere in Southern California I'd rather live. Uh, There are... No places where I think like there's more opportunities for us. We're not uh, deep, you know, deeply perverted in our valley. Uh, deeply entrenched in sin. Yet there's not a lot of love for Jesus here. There is still a need to be a bright light in our valley. To, and we will shine as we love one another. Peter calls us to love one another because the end is drawing near. Our valley is darkening. We need to love one another. And third, we need to serve faithfully. We need to serve faithfully. Um, Peter says in verse 10, here's where he says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who's speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who's serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Don't know how much you've looked at spiritual gifts in Scripture. They're described a lot in Romans chapter twelve, First Corinthians chapter 12. But the simple truth is, is that the time when, when you or any Christian, believes in Jesus Christ, you are at that time not just sealed with the Spirit, but you're also given a spiritual gift. That is different from a skill that you might develop, a talent that you had through genetics or training or family or whatever. It's different than the thing you do as a job. It is something that you are uniquely gifted in by the Spirit of God for the health of the church and through which you're going to bear supernatural fruit and usually experience uh, unusual joy as you minister it. There are believers who are gifted in hospitality, in giving, in leading, in administration, in serving, in so many things. And, like, for me, I would say, man, preaching, teaching, exhortation, three services, no problem, totally energized, with y'all love it, but you put me in a place where I have to uh, show mercy, and I'm kind of quickly drained, like it's a lot tougher for me, other people thrive that way, I can share my faith with someone, and I pray for fruit. Others of you share your faith, and like people just get saved all the time. and It's really frustrating, by the way. But it just happens because God has gifted you more that way. Some of you bear unique and special fruit and particularly enjoy hosting and hospitality. Other believers are passionate about gifting, and they have a unique ability to specially identify the needs of other people around them in a way that most of us are blind to. Like there's unique ways in which God has gifted every person who is in Christ. And as you serve in the church, each of you manifests exactly what Peter's describing. He says, We're to faithfully serve one another through the use of our spiritual gifts. And the purpose of your gift is to benefit the local church. That's what first Corinthians chapter twelve, verse seven says. In your notes, it says, Each to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for the good of the church. And that just means that God gave you that particular and special gift at the time of your salvation for the benefit of others. I don't know the gifts you have. You may not know the gifts you have. And it's really not commanded that you figure them out. Uh, Every gift that is listed in scripture is something that's commanded of believers. We're all to serve. We're all to be hospitable. We're all to give. We're all to have mercy. Like all of those things are true. But God gave you something unique with purpose for the health of the rest of the church, through which he's going to bear supernatural and unusual fruit through your ministry. And as you serve, you're going to find there's going to be something by which you were like, man, that was actually fun. And other people are going to be like, you should do that again. That was good. And if you're like, well, that's not what I'm doing, that's okay. You can keep doing it if you want or find somewhere new to serve and eventually you're going to find that spot where there is supernatural fruit through it and then you're going to feel like man i think this is the church affirming that i'm good at this welcome to your spiritual gift right so so that's how god designed the body first corinthians chapter 12 verse 18 what it says there in your notes god has placed the members each of one of them each one of us in the body in the church just as he desired in other words he gave those gifts to you with purpose so that you would fit into a local church and help that church and serve within that church and cause that church to grow. Now, Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12 describe like lists and all the different types of gifts. First Peter 4 just puts two big headings. It says they're serving gifts, they're speaking gifts. Serving and speaking gifts, the two big ones, both are a stewardship, both are to be used for the church, and they're, they're to be done for God's glory. Done in His strength, done for His glory. And as we move into 2023, as we move into a church building, as we approach life there, I just want to ask you to take this to heart. Say, am I serving faithfully? Am I committed to serve faithfully? I think as I look around, there was a few of you who were here 20, almost 20 years ago when we started FBC. Most of y'all weren't, but we started FBC with about 40 people who all were experienced in serving and leading. That's just the, the people whom God brought at the start of us. It became a part of our DNA as a commitment to serve within the church. Our first college pastor was a horse vet who loved to study and teach God's Word and invest in disciple young men. Our first youth pastor was an irrigation sales guy uh, who loved to witness in the local gym and preach the gospel, uh, especially to students. Uh, Our biblical counseling was headed by a couple who ran a farm management company. Uh, Our equipping classes were initially led by a hospital administrator. I think our first children's um, ministry leader was a, a real estate agent, if I remember right. For more than half the life of our church, The only two people who were paid were were just me and Chris. Like 60 to 80% of our church served. It's what sustains and continues to sustain us. We are a serving church. It's a large part of what made us the church that we are is the membership, the, the people who are committed and invested in serving. It's why we require when, when somebody wants to be a member of our church that they need to already have a place where they're serving. I was talking to a guy about this during the break. It's like, so is that before membership or after? It's before We expect, as a normal part of the Christian life, that believers are going to serve and minister their gifts. It's just a part of what it means to be a Christian. And praise God, as our church has grown, as we're at this stage, right now, there are more of you serving than there ever has been. It's so good. I'm so thankful. We're so encouraged. And, And our church is blessed and benefited from that so much. It just starts again. So... Flashbacks of last week. Um, There's more people serving than ever before. And at the same time, I can say honestly that as I look around on Sundays, there's more spectators than there's ever been who just sit and show up and watch the circus. We need to change that. If that's you, if you don't have a place where you're regularly serving, where you're using your spiritual gifts, I want you to take Peter's words to heart. He wants you to faithfully serve within the church. He says, as you've received a gift, to employ it in serving one another as a good steward of the manifold grace of God. We need you to serve. We need you to serve because we are moving on to a new campus where there's going to be new ministries, new opportunities for the gospel, uh, new, more work than ever before. It's totally true. But the real reason we need you is found in Ephesians 4.16. This is why God has called us to faithfully serve. Look at Ephesians 4.16 in your notes. It says, The whole body, the church, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part, that's us, each member, is working properly It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In other words, our church is healthiest when every believer is using their spiritual gifts to serve one another. That's actually how God designed the church family to work, that we would use our gifts to serve one another, to minister to one another, and show off Jesus Christ to one another in the unique ways and contributions which you have, so that he would be exalted and we would see Christ more fully, and we would actually speak into one another's lives and be served by one another. it's an amazing design and honestly that means in order for us to be healthiest we need every christian in our church serving and using their gifts and we are not as healthy when we have less people using their gifts and serving so it's not just that oh we 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 need help it's no we want to be healthy and we need you in order to be healthy we don't just need you here on sunday we need you using your gifts to minister to others In order for us all to be the healthiest we can be as Christians, which makes us then the most ready for Jesus to return and makes us most ready to endure some of the challenges we're going to face as the end draws near. Does that make sense? That's why he calls us to serve one another. And and I want to confess like, I love our church. We are a praying church. More than we ever have been in the past. We're growing in our praying as a church. We, we're more faithful in prayer than we have been. We, we love people. I think we do good at that. We're doing even better. There is a love for one another that's manifest on the patio, that's manifest in conversation, in CGs, in different ministries. In, in your care for one another, there's love. And there's service. Like we, we are a serving church. Like I said, there's more people serving than there's ever been before. And I also think that God would have us do better in 2023. We have a ways to go. We can improve in these things, in every one of these areas. And it is a new year. There's new opportunities before us. Everything's in flux. Ministries are just restarting. There's no better time to get plugged in. There's no better time to make changes. There's no better time to get ready for Christ's return. So if I could plead with you, it would just be to resolve with me to choose one of these things to work on this year. Not as a New Year's resolution, but to get more ready, if the Lord tarries, for, for the days to darken. To end this year more ready for His return, maybe by praying more clearly. Or by loving others more deeply. Or by serving others more faithfully. I I have no idea when the end will come, but I know that this is what Peter says, we're to prioritize as believers. These three things, to pray, to love, to serve, that's what our priorities are to be. And you have a choice today, just to walk out the door and ignore it all, which would be stupid, or to say, no, there's there's something I'm going to work on. Maybe something you've been convicted over. Something where you say, you know what, I... I do need to change this. I need to to grow in this. I need to take a step forward in my service or maybe in my prayer life or whatever that is. I need to stop grumbling and complaining about people. And you you commit and you resolve today to do that differently. And you'll you'll have a, if the Lord tarries, you'll, you'll have a year and I promise you there will be impact in your life and in the life of our church as a result of your obedience. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to just dig briefly into your word today. We freely admit that this life is distracting, that it too often seems to be the thing which is our priority, and we forget the accountability we have to live for your glory and honor in a dying world. Father, help us to be faithful men and women who show off the great love you have for us in Jesus Christ. A love that did not just speak with words but acted to the point of death on the cross. But we have experienced a mercy and grace that is beyond what we can repay. Help us, Lord, to Love others with what we do know and can of your love for us. Let us be faithful to be praying people. Men and women who think clearly, who are guided by your word, not our emotions or our feelings, but who think soberly and realize the days that they're in and the challenges and dangers they face. And who go to you with purpose. And Father, help us to be faithful, to serve and love and use our gifts for one another. Father, thank you for the many men and women who serve you faithfully right now. Thank you for the ways in which we see and experience your love through their ministry, through their sacrifices. Father, help us to be more faithful more ready for your son's return. We don't know when that will be. And some days we want it delayed, but the truth is, is we're ready. We are ready to be done with the sins and temptations and trials of this world, the hurts and pains and agonies and toils. We look forward to when you will make all things new. We know your ways and your plans are perfect. We don't know when your son will return. But we believe that he will. And we pray it would be soon. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks and have a great day.